breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on Blaze TV Podcasts. It is great to be with you. And uh, thanks for coming back if you've listened before. If this podcast is new, I hope you find a voice of reason, a fresh voice of courage, somebody who is an American Muslim, who is unapologetic, that uh, is willing to take on the Islamists. And I'll, if you don't know what Islamism is, I will let you know at the end of this program, by the end of this program. And uh, I think you sh- we should, every American, whether Muslim or not, needs to understand what political Islam is because that is the ideology we're fighting. I think it's the greatest threat to mankind in the 21st century, which is theocracy. When a quarter of the world's population is susceptible to theocracy, I think that's a major threat. And we've talked about many of the countries from Iran's theocracy to Saudi Arabia's Wahhabism, also theocratic to the militancy of uh, many of the radical viral groups, be it the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, etc. On this program, week to week, I address the ideas that I think are at the battlefronts of this problem. And, you know, when I was in Australia a couple weeks ago, I couldn't help but share with the audiences that we need to stop thinking of this as only a Muslim problem. There are things you can do in the West that you'd be surprised. I see my own Congress, our own Congress in America, I told them, turning towards Islamism, turning towards what the UN is. And yet, the demand for debate, the uh, opportunities that we have to fight for freedom, for liberty against theocrats, often seems to be missing. We don't hear it. We don't see it. And we miss so many opportunities. And I think things that can be done in the West need to be done here because in the Middle East, it is very difficult. You've got even the Saudis now taking on the Brotherhood. Sounds good. But it's not good. Because, yeah, it might be good in the short term, but in the long term... Still, the resultant is going to be an autocratic monarchy who pushes a version of Islam that's Neanderthal. There's no reform happening there. Their reform is little things around the edges, window dressing of wrestling matches and rock bands and other things. They don't really change the theological interpretations. Oh, people say, oh, give it time. First decade, some concerts. Next decade, women driving Next decade, are you seriously, decades? No. I just broke 50 years old and uh, not recently, maybe a year ago, but at the end of the day, we don't have much time. We got we to gotta push. We got to push for reform. And that's why on this program, I don't only talk about reform. We talk about the Muslim reform movement, about countering Islamism. You may all recall, you may all recall the horrific act of terror against the two mosques in New Zealand. 51 Muslims slaughtered, many, many more injured. And in the wake of that, we had some significant conversations about religious freedom, about liberty, about the need to protect our houses of worship. 
Now there's been more speeches. Things are starting to get a little looser. Conversations are becoming more, oh, frank, if you will. And a leader of the Muslim community in New Zealand, Ahmed Bamji, chairman of the Mount Roskill Masjid-e-Umar, gave a speech in which he started to talk about what he thought really happened. So listen, this is not some callous sort of conspiratorial non-Muslim that can be quickly labeled a bigot by the Islamist. This is a Muslim leader from that community. What did he say? He said, I'm not afraid to say I feel the Mossad is behind this. I, I kid you not. He blamed the Mossad. On Saturday, a group of love, Araria, hate, racism, a group against bigotry in New Zealand, organized a rally for the victims of Auckland's Atiyah Square. Ahmed Bamji, chairman of the Mount Roskill Masjid Umar, gave a speech questioning where the gunman got his funding from. He said he suspected it came from the Mossad and Zionist business. Mossad, as you all know, is an intelligence agency for Israel, a democracy, our greatest ally in the Middle East, equivalent to our CIA. He said, I really want to say one thing to you today. And this is, was not a small group. He was saying this publicly outside in a rally. I really want to say one thing today. Do you think this guy was alone? I want to ask you, where did he get his funding from? Can he be heard? I stand here and say I have a very, very strong suspicion that there's some group behind him. And I'm not afraid to say I feel the Mossad is behind this. And then another person shouts in support. It's the truth. Israel is behind this. That is the truth. That is right. Can you believe that heinous bigotry? And I say it's bigotry because they bring this up not about a policy disagreement as Ilhan the Islamist, Ilhan the Islamist Omar, congressman from Minnesota, constantly is trying to remind people that criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism. Well, when you're generalizing about a country and an Jewish people, it absolutely is rank bigotry. And I don't, and 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 I echo the Jewish community's horror when they hear things like this. And this is coming from a victimized community in New Zealand. How do you respond to that? It has to be Muslims that respond. It has to be. Non-Muslims can't respond to this idiot. This flaming bigot blames the Jews. Ideas that ultimately led to the Holocaust in Europe against the Jewish community, that type of blood libel and other aspects where we're blaming the Jews on everything, ultimately led to a passive neglect by the majority of Germans as Hitler committed the Holocaust. And yet, in the wake of Muslims being slaughtered in an anti-racism rally, this bigot decides to blame Israel and the Mossad. And then they interviewed folks saying that they were speechless, they couldn't believe he said it. And I have to tell you, it, it's educational. Educational about the silence from the Muslim community. Ultimately, they really didn't say anything in response. Silence about how this wasn't, you know, I tweeted this out. There was, it was pretty well distributed. But at the end of the day, 
it should have gotten more play. Should have gotten more attention that responses to militancy, responses to terror show our character. There were other Muslims that responded and said that they will not harbor hate for any community or even I tweeted a video from an individual who was pious. That is really the Islam that I learned. This this Muslim said, I cannot hate this man. He will have his day of reckoning. But he loves the country of New Zealand and loves the freedom that he's given to build his mosque. That is the Islam that I learned. But unfortunately, those Muslims who believe like that aren't given as much attention as the Islamist platforms that the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups get. Then we had this week also the further platforming of Ilhan Omar. Yeah, I know you don't want me to talk about her, and I don't blame you, neither do I, but there are things that just have to be addressed. She went and spoke at that fundraiser. I told you she was speaking at a fundraiser for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood Legacy Group, the offshoot supporters of Hamas that refused, that the FBI has specifically said is persona non grata with the federal government because of their position on Hamas in which they will not condemn them and condemn them by name. Ilhan Omar now is speaking for them as a courageous exemplar, their hero. That's absurd. But fine, she has the freedom to do that. That's okay. We should expose her. And hundreds, if not a thousand Americans gathered outside the Hilton where she was speaking and protested. Protested her fundraising for an organization that's anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. Protested her blind eye to the tyranny of Islamic governments, be it Iran, the Muslim Brotherhood movement, or Saudi Arabia. Now, she claims she was critical of Saudi Arabia, as I discussed on this program. I think her criticism started after the Saudis pulled out from Muslim Brotherhood support in 2017. Where's her criticism of the Somali humanitarian abuses? She went to Eritrea, took pictures three weeks ago with Eritrean leaders. Where's her? She talked about social justice and peace were the words she used when talking about the Eritrean government. One of the most heinous tyrannies on the planet when it comes to religious freedom. They have slavery and invoke in the name of Sharia, Islamic law, oppression of women minorities, and multiple other vulnerable groups. She said nothing. Again, her obsession is Israel. Her obsession is America. She criticizes Brazil. Why? Brazil's government happens to be pro-Israel. So she seems to be using the talking points of Al Jazeera, using the talking points of the Islamic states and their UN platforms. You know, when you look at the protesters, she made a statement in which she said she basically was 
And she said this sarcastically, and Huffington Post called it the clapback or whatever the heck they call these things that these fifth graders like AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are using on Twitter. But they they basically were just so impressed by her clapback and saying that, well, it seems like I have taken up permanent residence in their head. And the there must be the Jewish community. The there must be the Republican conservative groups, as she generalized. My response was, Memory released two videos that showed radical imams spewing anti-Semitic hate, spewing anti-American after the New Zealand mosque shooting, said that this is the blood and pillage that happens to Muslims by the West against Muslims wherever the West goes. That is an imam in her district in Minnesota. The video is online. Where is this imam has residence inside her district and in her head. Where's her condemnation of him? Nowhere. Her obsession is not about her district. Her obsession is to become part of the Islamist platform, part of the national Islamist movement. There was also another piece this week that came out that I think is sort of a defining moment about what we're up against and how mainstream the Islamists are getting. And authors Hassan Hassan and Ola Salem published a piece this week that said, Arab regimes are the world's most powerful Islamophobes. Yeah, okay, so... Let me take a second, take a deep breath, take this in. Arab regimes are the world's most powerful Islamophobes. And the picture has a picture of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the 30-plus-year-old so-called reformist, anti-Muslim brotherhood, frequent tyrant, whatever you want to call him, his picture. This is the guy who runs the country that's the seat of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. This is the guy who claims to pray five times a day, etc. Bottom line is, is you can't not call MBS and his royal family Muslim. But they did. Foreign policy, Hassan Hassan, the expert. This is a guy who has written it and is pretty, you know, I don't feel he's mainstream, but been mainstreamed by media for some time as the expert on the Middle East, uh, ISIS, and other radicalization issues. And this long piece goes on to basically describe was that he said, in 2017 at a public panel in Riyadh, and again, remember, this is starting 2017, that year is important because that's when the, the Saudis abandoned the Muslim Brotherhood. But for so long, the Islamists never said anything about the Saudis. Why? They were feeding from the trough of the Saudi billions of Petro-Islam, the guys that got locked into to the Ritz-Carlton's prison were the princes that were feeding the mosques and the Islamist groups all over the world that were part of the Brotherhood evangelical Islamist movement that were working with the Saudis and spreading their version or quasi-overlapping version of Islam. But now, 
the Saudis realized that the Qataris, which was the home base of the Brotherhood and Al Jazeera's media outfit, were not really working with them, but working against them, trying to destroy them. So they rechanged that entire plan and now have been taken on the Brotherhood. So the West's Brotherhood operatives have decided to take them on too. And lo and behold, we have this peace and foreign policy now that basically says that the foreign minister of UAE, Sheikh Abdul bin Zayed, issued a warning about the Islamists in Europe. He said, there will come a day that we will see far more radical extremists and terrorists coming out of Europe because of lack of decision-making, trying to be politically correct or assuming that they know the Middle East and that they know Islam and they know the others far better than we do, Zayed said. I'm sorry, but that's pure ignorance. The message was clear. European leaders would face a future endemic of Islamic extremism if they continued to tolerate the presence of what he described as radical extremists and terrorists in the name of human rights, freedom of expression, and democracy. And then he goes on to criticize Hassan Sejwani, who also spread these ideas. All pretty correct things that I say. Now, they want to call these guys Islamophobes. That's what he does through the rest of the piece. How can that be? How could they call leading Muslims who books published in Washington, the 500 most influential Muslims funded by the Saudis and others, American Jim Zogby and and uh, some of these same people now criticizing the Saudis as un-Islamic, anti-Islam, Islamophobes. We're also heralding them as the most influential, wonderful Muslims on the planet just three, four years ago. And now they're re- releasing research in this foreign policy that says based on dozens of conversations conducted over several years we found that the autocratic regimes in the region carefully cultivate conservative and far-right circles in the west that they believe lean toward their own anti-islamist agendas the two sides political goals don't completely overlap western islamophobia can be far more vehement and sweeping than the variety supported by arab governments Nevertheless, both sides find the partnership beneficial. Arab propagandists claim there is an inherent connection between so-called political correctness and a tendency to downplay ideologies that lead to terrorism. Claims that are seized on by the Western conservatives to legitimize their own arguments. And then they quoted a Fox News piece, 2017, in which actually... They were legitimizing why they declared CARE a terrorist organization. He said, our threshold is quite low when we talk about terrorism. The Emirati foreign minister told Fox News a month after the 17-panel discussion of Riyadh, we cannot accept incitement or funding. For many centuries, the definition of terror is that you have to carry a weapon or terrorize people. For us, it's far beyond that. So, and then they go on to equate it to Assad, support of Assad, and David Duke, So it's amazing how the slippery slope for them, the connection of the conveyor belt of radicalism is willy-nilly made every other sentence in this piece when it comes to conservatives. 
But the Islamist conveyor belt can never be invoked because that would be Islamophobic. And in order to continue that, they do what has been, ladies and gentlemen, part of the narrative in the Middle East for over a hundred years. This is not new. Not just today did Islamists like Hassan Hassan and Ola Salem decide to all of a sudden decide that the king of Saudi Arabia, yeah, now they decided to frontally say that, but if revolutions were to happen, as we saw in Egypt or Syria or elsewhere, the Brotherhood's mantra, Hamas's mantra against Fatah was that they are anti-Islam. Fatah is, yeah, Fatah was corrupt, secular, tyrannical, autocrats, but that's what I would call them. I don't call them anti-Islam because Islam wasn't their platform. They're anti-Islamist. So was Assad. Assad was one of the most genocidal, evil people in the Middle East, if not in the planet in the last decade. But that doesn't make him not a Muslim or anti or an Islamophobe. He's working with the Khomeinists. How could that make him an Islamophobe? I mean, the logic of this piece is just horrific. So their interpretation of autocratic tyranny is that monarchical tyranny, Wahhabi tyranny, military tyranny of Egypt, of Assad, of Saddam, or now, or as it was Libya at the time, whatever, any of those tyrannies was anti-Islam. Yeah, it might violate many of the principles of freedom, of, of, of theological personal belief in Islam, but to say that they're Islamophobes shows you how useless that term is. And it also shows you that rather than deal that the easiest way, and this has been the history in the Middle East, ladies and gentlemen, rather than deal with other pathways of society, of legal systems and constitutions, they would much rather peddle in the fact that if you do not believe that the Constitution and the legal system should be Quran-based and Sharia-based as the source rather than a source, then you are anti-Islam and you must be a bigot against Muslims. And therefore, they use the same tools that the King of Saudi Arabia and the dictators use, which is if you're against the government, you're anti-Islam. This tool is all they have in their tool chest from both sides of the binary tyrannical equation, and the Islamists are now weaponizing it. They're weaponizing it against the Saudis who've now taken on the Brotherhood. They've weaponized it against the Emiratis who've now taken on the Brotherhood. Any families, any groups or organizations that do it, they did it against me. Since 2006 and seven, we formed in 03. The CARE folks and others have said that I am either a self-hating Muslim or I'm an Islamophobe. I'm listed still on Islamophobia.org as one of the top Islamophobes in America, which is just absurd. I find that no different then The Economist this week deciding that Ben Shapiro was a radical of the alt-right. And then when the internet exploded about it, they decided to remove it and correct and say he was just a radical conservative. And I don't even know what that means. Here's a guy that was probably the primary target in social media of the alt-right, because of their deep anti-Semitism. Reason Magazine interviewed Richard Spencer from the alt-right and said, obviously, that he doesn't stand for any of the ideas that Ben Shapiro does. 
not to mention that the alt-right targeted Ben Shapiro primarily. But that didn't matter to the economists because when it comes to the left, they look at the threats. The biggest threat to them are those who have the ears of millennials. And Ben does. So, the Islamists now are going out full force as the Qatari lobby buys itself inches of opinion pieces in the New York Times as Erdogan's running op-eds in the New York Times, the Islamist tyrant of Turkey, with neo-Ottoman, neo-Caliphate desires and dreams. As the Washington Post does, its obsession with the Khashoggi, Khashoggi affair. And again, I say obsession because there have been many assassinations. I'm not excusing what they did with Khashoggi. It's completely immoral and inhuman. But I've been anti-Saudi before any of these fools were. I've been working against the tyranny of, of radical Wahhabism and all of its tentacles for the entire existence of my political life. Read my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, where I talk about it. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to understand what we're fighting, the last hundred years in the Middle East, since Qutb, Sayyid Qutb and Hassan al-Banna began their Islamist movement of the Brotherhood, it has been to basically say that everyone who's not with them is anti-Islam. And then they look at the groups that are not with them, that are not part of the Islamist movement, they say, well, why don't we make them all into the worst of them? So if they're not, if they're anti-Islamist, and against their movements, then let's look at the Assads, the monarchs, the kings that are kleptocratic, that really are despised by the people that want to be free. And let's say that if you're not with the Islamist group, then you must be part of these tyrants. What an easiest way you avoid debate. It's Orwellian. So the best way for them to fight without having to deal with the ideas of liberty and freedom, true secular liberal democracy and governance, is to generalize about their enemies, is to say that their enemies are all tyrannical, and that's what this piece in Western media and foreign policy in Washington Post is to say that Muslims, the king is an Islamophobe, the crown prince is an Islamophobe. The Zayed family and the Emirates are Islamophobes. Are you kidding me? It just shows you that their movement is dying. The Islamists, as Daniel Pipes has rightly said, are losing. Now, I firmly believe that as we give them more attention, the liberal Muslims will rise. And we need to we need to engage with those who have a future, not just short-term, but long-term. Last, you know, there's been some controversy you know, about the Golan, the Golan Heights. And uh, I just want to make it clear. I laud President Trump I couldn't even believe, I didn't even realize, maybe it's stupidity on my part, but I, I just did not realize that we had not wrecked. I know that basically the they're contested areas according to the UN or whatever, but they're useless. I really don't give two you-know-whats about what the UN thinks. But this past week, President Trump's administration 
put a dot on the I and cross the T that we recognize the Golan Heights as Israel proper. And I not only laud that, and listen, I'm a Syrian American. This is not about Syrian nationalism. My parents abandoned that, like used toilet paper because of what was happening in the 60s to their country, and they embraced American nationalism, American patriotism, and freedom. But we have family there. We have family that's struggling, that went through a revolution that failed, unfortunately, sadly and depressingly and disgustingly failed because of Russia, because of Iran, and because of a lack of aid to those who really want to be free. And the Golan was lost in the 67 war. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, which loss in a war should after a few decades all of a sudden, but you know what? Oh, we feel sorry for the other side. And by the way, the other side is run by one of the worst dictators on the planet. Let's give it back. Let's give them back a mountain that has the capabilities of providing a positioning for weapons that would jeopardize Israel property. Absurd. So if you don't do that, then at some point it needs to be adjudicated. It would never be adjudicated to anyone who would be considered Israel's enemies, and it's surrounded by enemies. And it was won in war. So that, at the end of the day, number one, should be full stop as to why it's Israel property. It was lost in a war. Number two, Syria has turned into one of the biggest threats to Israel because of Iran's constant chance of death to Israel, death to the Satan, the little Satan of Israel, the great Satan of America, and ultimately their attempt to try to get nuclear weapons and their genocidal statements about Israel. So, to allow them even to think that that could ever back be brought back is absurd. Absurd. Syria needs to move on. Hopefully, and and now they threatened. They threatened that uh, 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 the the foreign minister of Syria said, "Oh, we will. He will see. Netanyahu will see the brunt of the Syrian military and the Syrian army and its success." Are you kidding me? Hafiz Assad, the father, sent eighty plus eighty six Syrian jets to fight against Israel and Lebanon and were shot down within three hours. All 86 went down within three hours and they had their you-know-what's handed to them. So, as they had that handed to them, now, many that knew folks in the military at the time, my family told me that uh, Assad just wanted to get rid of a cohort of Sunni pilots, Sunni officers that were a threat in his chain of command. Bottom line is they had their ass handed to them. So, go ahead. I don't think anything is going to happen. I think it was appropriate for President Trump to do that, just as it was for him to identify what has always been, over the last decades, the capital of Israel, since its seat of government has been there. It is the capital, which is Jerusalem. We need to move on instead of infantilizing the Arabs, the Palestinians, the Syrians. Treat them as adults. If they did go to war, 
Israel would end up doing anyway what the Syrian people were not able to do because they didn't have the weapons because Russia and Iran militants backed up the Assad regime. So none of us would shed tears if Israel ended up defending the Golan because it had to be identified as what it is, which is part of Israel. I seriously don't know any Syrian Americans that are saying that it's better for that to be run by Assad. Now, perhaps they have dreams of eventually having it, and they're anti-Israel, they're anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic, whatever it might be. I'm not denying that there are many Syrian Americans that have that sentiment. But we, from my position, countries like Japan and others that have lost wars move on, move on. Korea, Vietnam, move on. With the lands as they were at the end of that war. That's all that makes sense. Not to mention the tyranny of Syria could never, right now with Esedis, Ba'athis, militants taking over Gulan, puts our ally, the Democratic Israel in a jeopardy that would never be, should never be allowed to happen. Well, always great chatting with you. Thank you for being with me. A lot to discuss and reform. A lot of battlefronts, if you will, that sort of check the tenor of where the ideas of those who are with us in the West for freedom and liberty and those who are against us with the Islamists. Always more and more to talk about. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for tuning in. Please share this podcast. Please Share it with your friends at iTunes and SoundCloud. Reform this. Also find that at blazetv.com podcast. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Take care. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.